Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's an interesting day just waking up and reading the New York Times as we assess, the, I guess, the status of global markets and the health of the global economy. But um, I won't say any more because we're joined by the great Mark Blythe here and somebody who can can really take us on a journey of understanding this stuff inside and out. But thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, th- thanks for the great. I usually have to pay extra for that. <laughs> well, the uh, invoice will be coming after this. Excellent. So it's obviously been a, a crazy week, um, week plus now. And the econ- people were assessing the economy from a layman's perspective, even from an analyst perspective, for a variety of reasons. A bank run was not amongst them right. until, of course, Silicon Valley Bank and the ensuing regional bank concerns. Where are we at right now? As we're now a- we're recording this on Tuesday morning, we're a day away from a, a Fed meeting that'll dictate a lot of perception about the health yeah. of markets, but. In terms of bank solvency, in terms of just the average person right now, where are we at no. in reality? Well, okay, so so let's not do the let's panic one, right? Uh, full disclosure, I do my local banking at Bank Newport and also at Citizens Bank, and I'm not moving anything. And I'm not being paid by them to say that. I'm just telling you, I'm not moving anything, right? So let's do the story on what this thing is and what it's not. Here's what it is in a nutshell. Two really weird banks got into trouble. Let me tell you how weird these banks are. One of them is in Silicon Valley and thinks it's a tech firm. It forgot to hire a risk manager who oversees all the risks on the books for seven months. And then they hired someone who last worked in the financial crisis of 2008. The real issue with this bank was not the fact that they were buying bonds And then what happens is in periods of inflation, as the Fed raises interest rates, the price of the bond goes down. So they were, in a sense, booking losses. Because those losses, if you hold the bonds to maturity, don't get realized. They're accounting losses. They're not real losses. So why does everybody freak out? Everybody freaks out because the majority of their deposits were not normal deposits. It wasn't me and you in our checking account. It was tech firm startup whatever with $5 million. And it was somebody with $25 million. It was somebody with $35 million. And when you've got deposits of that size and everybody knows everybody else and everybody's on stack or something like this, basically sending messages all the time, they started the bank run basically amongst themselves because they were like, this place is insolvent. And the more that everyone said it was insolvent, the more it became true. And what was amazing about Silicon Valley's meltdown was that how fast. And basically 48 billion, I think it was, over two days. And this is the first time that we've had a kind of social media weaponized bank run. That's weird. Now let's go to the next one, right? First Republic. 
First Republic's kind of similar but different. First Republic has the same stuff with, like, they bought lots of bonds and they didn't hedge them, right? So when the price went down, they got problems, right? But the big thing here is, again, it's unusual depositors. They go after the high net worth individuals. They go with the people that's above 250,000, well above 250,000. And guess what? That means there's fewer of them. And they all talk to each other. And they all start to think, oh, maybe I should get my money out of here, right? This is not what's going on in your local bank. Right, these are very special institutions. Now, is it the case that lots of banks were incentivized since 2008 to load up on bonds as their so-called base capital, right? Which means the stuff that you can sell in an emergency if you get into trouble. Yes. Did we get seduced into thinking that we'd never see inflation again in our lifetimes, which meant that bond prices would always be high? Yes. Are there people out there who kind of forgot to hire a risk manager or hedge those risks? Yes. Is it everyone? Probably not. Now let's bring it to the Swiss one, right? So the big international bank, the systemically important one, right? So there's two banks in Switzerland and now there's one and there was a shotgun marriage done by the state. And what was that all about? Swiss Switzerland is a banking system. That's what they do. They can't afford to let one of these things go down. And this thing has been bleeding for a decade or longer. It's had bad management. It's had multiple fines. It's been involved in money laundering. Like, if you can just say all the stuff a bank shouldn't do, they almost specialised in it. So what happened was, in this case, they were also on the wrong side of some investments. They'd been losing money, etc. And just that general sort of like, of the whole thing, really began to take it down. And of course, being really systemically important in this case, particularly for the Swiss, there's a nice line from the ex-governor of the Bank of England who says, all banks are international in life and national in death, right? They always come back home to die, right? And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a big, over-levered international institution basically going back home to die and be absorbed by its competitor. Now, when I add all those things up, that's an interesting week, but it doesn't necessarily make me go, the world's on fire, quick, buy gold. Pretty straightforward right there. And how does this play into this being the conversation around um, bank solvency? How does it play into the broader health of the economy right now? Obviously, historically, war has been a boon to any sort of economic picture when we look back on on major periods of, of conflict. But, you know, right now, there's there seems to be this morning anyway, there seems to be optimism in a way that a week ago just wasn't there. But what's the actual health of the the global economy right now? Well, it's not doing too great in the sense that, you know, you've staggered through a COVID pandemic and spent an absolute ton of cash to cushion it on the worst case scenario that it was going to be the Black Plague and we were all going to die. It turned out to be quite milder than that, thankfully, and then that generates, along with supply chain screw-ups, the inflation we're dealing with just now. That seems to be finally turning. Eventually, it will sort of like go back. Will it go back to where it was before? Probably not. Um, the shocks to do with climate change and geopolitics mean that that's probably not going to be where we end up. But, you know, the world's always changing. If you're constantly looking back to saying, you know, uh, it's, it's a bit like 2008. I used to love it when uh, I'd go to Germany and uh, I would hear people say, when are we going to get, you know, 4% of the savings bank again? And my answer was never. You know, sometimes the world changes. Uh, but look, you're getting 4% of the savings bank now. So who knew, right? So things are always changing. Right. Okay. That's, that's the uninteresting one. Here's the more interesting one. Let's think about what the Fed does. 
The Fed is because of the size of the dollar around the world and the fact that everybody uses dollars and it's the world's saving asset, right? If you're a Chinese firm and you earn money in America, you can't use dollars at home. You get swapping it for your domestic currency. The Chinese central bank then has all these dollars. They turn it into bonds. This is why we keep issuing debt because people want to buy it, right? All that sort of stuff. So now in a way, the Fed's the international central bank because of the prevalence of dollars. Now, the Fed has a, two, a dual mandate, right? The idea is price stability on the one hand, which is kind of anti-inflation, and the other one is maximum employment, right? Which means basically pump it up a bit. And those two are conflicting at the best of times. But now what this week is exposed is there's a third one, and the third one's called financial stability. And if you prioritize financial stability, basically by bailing out banks and doing all these things, then you can't keep raising interest rates to kill inflation. Because if you do, you're going to impair those capital bases made of bonds even more. And you're going to end up basically causing a problem that you're trying to fix with another one of your policy tools. And then if you maximize the employment one, then you're also dialing back on inflation, but you're not doing anything about financial stability. So basically, the Fed's like the guy on the unicycle with the three juggling batons, right? That's basically what... That, to me, is the interesting thing to watch just now, right? Because there's a temptation then to double down on the inflation mandate and essentially say, we can deal with financial stability by giving everyone a guarantee. And that's where the conversations were last week, right? Do we have to give everybody a guarantee now? Well, if you give everyone a guarantee now, essentially what you're doing is doing a taxpayer backstop to everybody's investment cost of capital. And I don't think the taxpayer has said that's a good idea. And if you do actually basically socialize any and all losses in the banking sector, to what extent is this a capitalist economy where you're balancing risk and reward? So there are big issues here in doing something that seems to be prudential, but is also kind of, when you think about it, deeply political. Right. It calls into question whether or not it is pure capitalism if you're literally backstopping every single risk that could potentially take place. But only in one sector, right? Only in the banking sector. Nobody's backing up the mechanical engineering sector's risk, right? It's just this one special sector. And why is it special? Because if it goes down, apparently it's going to take everything down. That's called extortion. Mm. Something you mentioned that I, I think is really important to note as well is the social media role that was oh, yeah. critical. Yep. And it's so different even than 2008, but... On a micro level here in Rhode Island, I, I spoke with somebody who was a communications director for then Governor Bruce Sundland in Rhode Island during the credit union crisis here in Rhode Island. And that was his big note was obviously that's on a micro scale. It's it's incomparable to an international firm. At the same time, a lot of the fundamentals were the same, but yeah. it took days. It took hours for that to really develop into panic level, whereas mm -hmm. in, in today – you know, you can blast something out on Twitter or if you're, you know, a Kramer or some sort of cable mm -hmm. news host, you can blast it out on a massive level. Obviously, that's traditional media. But how dangerous is social media when it comes to these sorts of situations? How much has it changed the game? It's massively changed the game. How dangerous it is depends upon your point of view as to whether there's fire in the building or not. If there's fire in the building and you shout there's fire in the building, you're doing a public service. If there's no fire in the building, you're causing a panic. Now, which one is it? Very hard to tell in the moment, right? But the fact is, it's just weaponized the ability of people to focus on one thing as being a problem. Think of it as the inverse of meme stocks. Remember meme stocks, 
right? GameStop and all the rest of it that happened 12 months ago, 18 months ago. So just think about it as the, as the flip side of this one, right? That what you had there was subreddits and other social media platforms where people were saying, bye, bye, bye. And everyone piled in, bye, bye, bye. And woof, just, it went through the roof, right? Think about this as exactly the same in reverse. It's sell, sell, sell. Get out, get out, get out, right? So this is ubiquitous now. And it really raises some interesting challenges, one of which the Fed is thinking through in terms of, if it's the case that we've weaponized the the ability of people to withdraw and to spread these types of either rumors or information, depending on how you look at it, then we're creating fundamental fragilities in the banking system. Right, The banking system is not fit to deal with that. Do we need to guarantee everyone? So we're back to that, do you extend deposit guarantees to everything to make sure that this just can't happen? But if you're doing that, there's a difference between like guaranteeing your granny's retirement savings, right? The 150000 that she's got in the bank somewhere, right, earning 3% that she's worked all her life for, and sort of the fly-by-night deposit of some tech company that's like VC money that's, you know, sitting there. Why are we guaranteeing risk capital? It's not the same thing as savings, but if you guarantee everything, you kind of have to treat it as all the same. Mm. That's the fundamental difference in all of this right now that, that you perfectly articulated and I think is not necessarily shared with the general public in sort of quick hits on you know, traditional media or even more in-depth pieces that, you know, there's a huge difference between a VC operation, like you say, a fly-by-night deposit and somebody who has that 180000 at Bank Newport because they're, you know, they've been working their whole life and, and saving and earning that interest. So your message right now is pretty, pretty clear. And, and, and I'm summarizing based on what you just said. Basically, if you're, you know, a standard issue depositor, at a standard issue bank, there's nothing to worry about. Well, I wouldn't say there's nothing to worry about. There's always something to worry about. But is there anything more than there was, like, say, four weeks ago? For most of us, I think not. Even the example of Credit Suisse going down, there was this remarkable thing where so-called uh, convert contingent convertible bonds basically were wiped out. They were the people that were forced to take losses, and that was unusual and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, it's all details. It's all details in the particularities of these cases, right? I'm not seeing sort of the money market for a run on the money market funds, right, coming out of this. In fact, you're seeing inflows in the money market funds. Um, you are seeing deposits going into big banks. That's a problem in the sense that you're just concentrating the sector anymore. But if you think about it, the, the job of a banking system is to concentrate society's risk. That's what it does. So would you rather have it with a big bank or a small bank? Well, I'm trading off the convenience and customer service of small banks and people that I know and I deal with against, if you will, the higher fees but greater safety of a JP Morgan. You can choose to do that or you can choose not to. I see at this point in time no reason for me to run over to Citibank and become just another number. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, when you think about that consolidation, it's it's narrow. Silicon Valley Bank in that rundown, I think it was number 16 in terms of largest banks. You know, it's it's an interesting debate Do in, in terms of just how we build society into the next hundred years. Do we further concentrate? Do we see more banks absorbed by larger banks? And the next thing you know, there's banks A, B, C, D, and maybe E. Is that a well, healthier direction than, than the d diversity of the smaller bank Newports and so on and so forth? Well, both of them are, in a sense, 19th and 20th century models of banking. I mean, if you think about it, most banking is still revolves, for, for most people, revolves around checks. And if you were starting today, even if they're digital, you wouldn't start with a check, 
right? So if you think about so-called fintech, you know, the disruption of finance or DeFi, decentralized finance, a lot of it's hype, but a lot of it is good product. And if at the end of the day, you know, I can, and this is very true for like generations younger than me, if I can take what little cash I'm being paid and put it not necessarily into crypto, but, you know, into things where the fees are lower, the transactions costs are lower, I'm more in control of putting it together for a generation that's much more used to these platforms, and that kind of disintermediates to use the language the banks, then fine, the banks have got to deal with that. On the other side of it, what really worries the banks is the notion of not a digital currency like a Bitcoin, but a central bank digital currency. Now, here's how this started, right? I don't know if you've got time for this. You may have to cut this short, but it's a fascinating story, right? So back in the day when Facebook wasn't meta and wasn't terrible, um, they had this idea called Libra. And basically, for about 50 countries in the world, people don't know this, for about 50 countries in the world, Facebook is the internet. They basically walked in, set up the servers and said, just use Facebook, so you'll email the whole lot, we'll do it. Consequently, they become the news provider, you know, the whole thing, right? Incredibly powerful, right? Without any regulation. And also they have 2 billion users worldwide. So imagine that they put up a firewall around Facebook and said, any transactions on Facebook now has to happen in a currency that we issue called a Libra. You've just instantly created a private money with no backing from the taxpayer and no backing from a state that's going to be as big as the dollar. And the American regulators went to Facebook and said, we're never going to discuss this in public, but you're not going to do this. And they backed off. Now, the one place where this is happening where they're not backing off is in China. Why? Because it's a surveillance society. And imagine having a digital wallet where every piece of currency not only could be monitored in real time as to where it is and who's got it, but what was the chain of its spending? Whose hands did it go through? How much did this person spend on that versus that? And how? And think about the social network mapping you could do through this. Everyone who knows everybody else. So if you're basically a very high-tech surveillance society, as, as China is, oh, this is a good one, right? Now, in a liberal society such as the United States, and I mean that in the classical liberal sense of freedom-oriented, right? You're never going to get away with that. But imagine if you did have at least a limited central bank digital currency in the dollar, Why would you need banks? We need banks to clear checks. If we had digital payments on our phone, you could go straight for, you could essentially use the Fed as the payment system. All of our payments could go through that and we could just basically do without the banks completely. They would still exist for commercial loans, they would still exist for mortgages, but the entire payments thing could be taken away. And that's a lot of fees. So over the long run, there's a lot of stuff coming down the turnpike that's going to be very disruptive for banks and potentially beneficial for consumers, but also kind of worrying in the scale of like these big changes. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. And we we hear the sometimes it's just parroting far. Well, we'll just say extreme concepts of cashless society. But ultimately, what you just described there is sort of a uh like many other areas of society, it's just sort of scaled down to, it's just sort of getting those older 19th, 20th century models out of the way for a more direct interaction. And, but at the same time, like you said, there's a lot of downside to it, both from a surveillance standpoint, but also who backs that at the end of the day. Exactly. See, the thing is, if dollar, if you're a bank, a bank that banks in dollars, at the end of the day, there's somebody called Fed the Fed can come and give you money to basically bail you out and make sure that you're still whole and you can trade your way out of it. If you're running a private currency, you're on your own. That's it. There's no there's no bank of Bitcoin. 
That's right. What last question? What what's your kind of shifting to that? There was there was a big effort in. I guess it was during the pandemic, but you know, I had a lot of friends who were like, "You got to get in on Bitcoin." Then it was NFTs. You, you know, mm-hmm. it just ex- this exploding crypto oriented crypto quote unquote backed um savings investment currency it it sort of fired on all cylinders and it seems to me that right now there's a lot of uncertainty about where that's going that's just from a completely layman's perspective no no you you're quite right you're quite right look, look there's two sides to this stuff i mean after many months of studying crypto several years ago to try and figure out its ins and outs i finally figured something out it's not money it's what the Chinese central bank call a digital gambling asset. And if you think about it that way, you know what you're getting into. The problem is most people don't know what they're getting into. And the other side of it was, think about when the NFTs and the latest crypto bubble hit. It was when money was literally free. They were mailing you checks that you didn't earn, right? At which point people are willing to take silly risks and believe silly things like NFTs, etc. And of course, now money actually costs things again because there's a real interest rate, a positive real interest rate. Nobody's doing this stuff. It's amazing how when you increase the cost of money above zero, people stop doing silly stuff with it. Right, so that that's lesson number one, but the more positive lesson, or at least if, I don't know if it's positive, but the more sort of lasting lesson I think goes like this: um, maybe blockchain will never find the use. Maybe it's only use cases Bitcoin. Maybe most other of these things is kind of uh, kind of not worth it. Why is it that your generation and the younger generations are so interested in this? And the answer is because my generation and the people above me, the boomers, I'm an Xer. We have all the other assets. We have all the houses. We have all the mutual funds. We have all the stocks. We had a 40-year bull run where we basically got everything. And when it went bust in 2008, we got it bailed out and we got it all back again. Consequently, you find it incredibly hard to buy a house. You find it incredibly hard to form savings. You find it hard to do things. You're delaying marriage. You're not getting married, etc., etc., right? And that speaks to the fact that basically there's a huge intergenerational inequality that we don't really talk about. And I think part of the reason that younger generations are so attracted to crypto is because it's the one thing that they've got that we don't have. So it's going to stick around for that reason. Wow, you just nailed it in a way that that I don't think anyone else has in, that I've ever heard anyone describe, which makes complete sense. That as a millennial, you look at it and you go, "This is an opportunity that otherwise, in the traditional sector, I simply don't have right now, and may never have." And it, you can understand why something new came along and was so attractive to, particularly millennials and Generation Z, particularly when the money to do so is free. Right, no question. Mark Blythe, he's the director of the William R. Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance, the William R. Rhodes 57 Professor of International International Economics and a Professor of International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Thanks so much for your time. This was uh, so informative and I appreciate it a lot. That's a pleasure. You just missed one thing off my title. At the end of all that, you meant to say, Andy sounds like Shrek. <laughs>